How are you doing? Um, if you can hear me, just wave, just to make sure that the sound is okay. That's wonderful. Uh, for those of you who are new here, uh, I want to add my welcome to the welcome that you've already received. It really is great to have you here. My name is Mbonisi. I'm one of the team of um, six pastors here at One Tribe. It's my privilege to open God's Word to you. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps in this technology series, please turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We're in the final message of our series on technology. We looked um, a few weeks ago at uh, technology and a theology of togetherness and what it means to live in a disembodied versus an embodied world. And then we looked at uh, a theology of the tongue and Muthehu spoke to us about the power of our words. And then we looked at a theology of time and looked at how uh, technology affects how we use our time and how we should view our time. And this week we're looking at technology, a theology of truth. And I'm super excited to be sharing this with you this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent. And some of you, this story is familiar to you and you know where it's headed. It ends with mankind eating a fruit. And in the bottom left-hand corner, you can see a now very familiar logo. I want to be clear. I'm not against Apple. I have nothing against Apple. I'm timing this sermon on my Apple iPhone. I am preaching with texts that are on an Apple iPad. I planned this sermon on a MacBook Air. I have nothing against Apple, but I do find it fascinating that when we want to do a cutting-edge sermon series on issues that are relevant to today and tomorrow and to Monday morning, a cutting-edge company points us back to this story recorded thousands of years ago. And if we want truth in an age of technology, this is a fantastic place to start. Now, the story goes, now the serpent was more crafty, can you say crafty, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. And she gets full marks up until that point. And all the women went, yay! But I wish she had stopped there. Because she carries on and says, but God did say, you must not eat from, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not Certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Can you say knowing? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining what? She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband 
was with her. There's a sermon in that, but it's not for today. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. That nightmare you have. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Father God, as we open your word this morning, we ask for your help. We ask for the Spirit's illumination of this text and the scriptures we look at. God, we read in your word that by your Spirit you love to give us words of knowledge. We pray for those this morning. We pray as I speak, as we pray for one another afterwards. We pray for words of wisdom. God, we ask for the discerning of spirits this morning. That we would see what you are doing through this powerful tool of technology, that we would see what the enemy is doing and not be unaware of his schemes. And more than anything else, Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd show us through the power of your Spirit the beauty and majesty and power of your Son, Jesus. And everyone said? Amen. All right. Um, so this is uh, part four in a series of four, and um, I found extremely helpful as I prepared for this week over the last few weeks, I've been going through a book by a man called Brett McCracken, one of the editors of the Gospel Coalition. It's called The Wisdom Pyramid. If I say anything that seems particularly good this morning, it's probably from Brett. I'll say that up front, but it's also plugged for his book, The Wisdom Pyramid. Um, you can get it on Kindle and on Audible and so on. But right here in the story, we see a couple of interrelated topics. We, 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 we see, um, on the one hand, words like knowledge and knowing good and evil and this tree this fascinating mystical mysterious tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so you've got the knowledge axis on the one hand and then on the other hand we've got the wisdom axis this this the fruit of this tree was desirable for gaining knowledge we've got this realization aspect after they take the fruit there are things that they realize and sort of far jump from there to this whole concept of truth. These, these themes have been running through Scripture from literally the beginning of time. And we can jump forward a couple thousand years to a great question that sums it up. It was at the moment before Jesus was crucified on a cross for my sin and your sin. And he's standing before, he's standing before Pilate. And Jesus is telling him about, about a kingdom that is coming and in his appearance has come. And, and Pilate says to him, ha, you're a king then? Said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate asks this, this incredible question. 2,000 years ago, Pilate says, what is truth? And I want to submit to you this morning that that is a key question for us to tackle this morning. That is a key question for you and I to tackle in this age because the whole idea of truth is undergoing a full-on frontal assault. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at the last few years. In 2016, every year the Oxford Dictionary puts out a word of the year. Did you know that? And in 2016, their word of the year, it's a word that hasn't been important before, maybe it didn't even exist before, but as, as, as language evolves, as culture evolves, our language changes and this captures that. And in 2016, just five years ago, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. What is post-truth? Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. If you want to change what someone thinks in 2016, this new concept appeared, don't don't, don't distract them with the facts. <laughs> what is shaping the way we think is emotion and rage and the strength of our personal beliefs. 2016, 2017, Time Magazine ran this cover saying, is truth dead? Time Magazine asking this question, is truth dead? And they, they use this font, this typography, to mirror a cover that they had run in 1966 that said, is God dead? Because you see, even Time Magazine understands that when you're talking about truth, Truth is under a full-on frontal assault. And when you're talking about truth, you're actually very much on God territory. You're very much on theological territory. 2017. And then all oh, that classic moment in 2017 when uh, President Trump had just walked into the White House and um, his representative, I don't know, spokeswoman, whatever it is, was a lady by the name of uh, Kelly Ann Conway. And there was a classic moment right at the beginning of the Trump presidency where she is in a public interview and she makes an astounding statement. Let's listen in. Not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that but the point remains Wait a minute. alternative that facts alternative facts four of the five facts he uttered 
The hey, one Chuck, thing he why, got hey, right Chuck. was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. Did you catch that? The guy says this guy got up and he lied. And Kellyanne Conway, she says, uh, no, he was giving, and then she pauses, because I think she realizes what she's about to say. And she introduces onto planet Earth this new concept of alternative facts. As she says that, she is speaking for, she is representing the most powerful man on the planet at that moment in time. Alternative facts, truth is under a full-on frontal assault. Now, as we proceed through this message, I just want us to remember two things about technology. Two things to remember about technology. The first is that technology is not evil, but it is a contested space. What I'm saying is that uh, this whole thing of alternative facts and so on, it isn't necessarily the fault of technology, because it's human beings using technology. It doesn't make technology the problem. It's like if there's a drunk driver who causes an accident with their car, the problem isn't automobiles necessarily. It's the drunk driver, the person using the technology. But there are things you can do about the technology, like ask yourselves, do we really need cars that are able to drive at 180 kilometers per hour? That's a separate discussion, but I want you to see the tension. Technology is not evil, but it is contested space. We've said before that every split second of time, every square inch of the universe is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. It's the same with technology. Technology, secondly, is not evil, but it is a multiplier. Technology can take good that we want to do and help us to multiply it to do more good. But technology can also take the evil that lurks in the human heart and multiply that evil. As I want us to remember about technology, three ways I want to emphasize the internet and social media actually benefit us in our pursuit of truth, in our pursuit of wisdom. The first way it benefits us is that it gives us the internet and social media give us access to information and wisdom like never before. I can dip into Brett McCracken's book on wisdom, a book written in the United States of America, that within deciding I want to get this and having access to it, I can have it at the click of a button in less than 30 seconds. I love wisdom, I, I love technology in, the, in terms of the access it gives us. Training, uh, in my medical training, I did that my undergrad before the internet was really a thing, but uh, my postgrad and training in surgery I did at a time when a, a spine surgeon in uh, Santa Barbara, California, by the name of Derek Moore, had said that he wanted to revolutionize orthopedic education. And he said the age of textbooks is gone. They're inaccessible, they're expensive, and they're out of date almost from the moment that they're printed. He said, let's take this thing virtual. And I mean, the blessing it has been in the orthopedic world is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, I'm thankful for access that we get from the internet and social media. I'm thankful for the platform that social media and the internet give. It allows those who potentially have no voice, as long as they have internet access, they can create a Twitter account or put up a video on YouTube. It potentially gives the voiceless a voice. And thirdly, 
There is the power of consensus. And what consensus means is that through likes and retweets and so on, we can very, very quickly get a sense for what a lot of people think is important, so that we can at least listen to that same voice or watch that same video and decide what we think about it. Social media and internet give us this access to consensus. What, what are people thinking about? What are people talking about? What are people thinking is important? So you can at least be aware of it. Two things to remember about technology. Three ways the internet and social media benefit wisdom. Four challenges I want us to be aware of in this age of technology. And I want to dwell particularly on challenge number four and break that down a bit. So I'm going to move quite quickly to the earlier ones. Four challenges of technology. And here, Brett McCracken was incredibly helpful. He talks about number one. Challenge number one is information overload. Yeah? I tell my children all the time, when I was your age, you know how many TV channels we had? One. In Bulawayo, in Zimbabwe. Yes, you had two in Harare. I had one in, Zim in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Their TV, Zimbabwe TV, one. It was not on at 9 o'clock, 10 in the, mo in the morning, or at 2 in the afternoon. You turned on the TV at 2 o'clock, all you got was, you know, the white static with the dots? Or if you were lucky, you got a and the color bars. You know those color bars they talk about? So we would wait. Four o'clock in the afternoon. And there was TV. You know how many options you had at the time? One. Like Ford said about the Model T Ford when it came out, people said, will it come in different colors? He said, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. Now, when you open Netflix, how many options do you have? You can't count. And we are overloaded with this information to a point where we can't make a decision. Have you ever done that? You will spend 15 minutes looking through for something to watch and somehow conclude there is nothing to watch. You see what's happening with information? Overload. We think more choices will help us to choose quickly because we find something we want. But when we're faced with information overload, we actually can't choose anything partly linked to what is called FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO? It's the fear of... And when there's information overload, we are fearful of committing even for 40 minutes to that program in case that one's better and I'm missing out. What information overload does to us, and this is important, and You've got to see what happens to us in an age of information overload. T.S. Eliot, decades ago, great English poet put it this way, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Do you see we're coming back to information and knowledge and wisdom, and there's an interplay between the two. Are we in an age of information overload? Oh, yes. Yes. 
McCracken notes in 2019, get this, a single minute, 60 seconds on the internet, saw the transmission in one minute in 2019 on the internet, 188 million emails. 18.1 million texts. 4.5 million video views on YouTube. By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. By 2025, 463 exabytes of data will be created each day online. Those of you who don't know what an exabyte data is, I know, but many of you don't. <laughs> Information overload. That is the equivalent of 212,765,957 DVDs per day. Five exabytes is equivalent to all words ever spoken by humankind since the dawn of time. In 2025, that amount of data will be created every 15 minutes. And here's the thing. On our phones, it fits in our pockets. We're in an age of information overload, and one of the byproducts of that is that our minds spend so much time sifting through this information and more energy than we realize triaging this information, trying to figure out what's important, what's not important, takes more energy than we realize. The act of multitasking. So you're driving and you stop, and then you check your Twitter feed, or you are sending an email, and then a WhatsApp message pings, and then you go to that, and then after that, you go back to the email, and then you go to the Word document that you were in. That process of what's called extreme multitasking burns phenomenal amounts of energy in our brains and actually leaves us feeling exhausted. Some of you think, but I, I, I didn't go to work the whole day, but I'm exhausted. You don't realize that when you were doing this extreme multitasking, Commanding your brain to jump from the email from your boss in your inbox to the earthquake in Asia to the price of tea in Ethiopia then to grapple with what's happening with the Tigray conflict putting an incredible strain on our brains. Information overload is number one. Number two is information versus misinformation. We live in a world of alternative facts. And this was worsened by the 2020 pandemic. What happened with the 2020 pandemic is that people rushed to put out so much information as we tried to cope with this new virus that even reputable institutions were putting out stuff that is contradictory. So we said, I'm not sure that I can trust the so-called experts. And in this age of information versus misinformation, we end up trusting ourselves only. And there's information versus wisdom. There's a difference between information or knowledge and wisdom. 
Ephesus uh, expounded this for us so well a couple of weeks ago. This is an age of information. No one can argue, argue that based on the facts I've just given. I don't think many would argue that this is an age of wisdom. What's the difference? What is this? Is a tomato. I love this church. The tomato. The vegetable, or is it a fruit? The fruit, that's knowledge. Tomato is a fruit. You put a tomato in a fruit salad, that's wisdom, and that's the difference. We have access to the, to the most incredible array of facts. This week, one thing I learned is there's apparently no word in the English language that rhymes with the word month. I did what you're doing now. I tried to think surely. You know, there must be... Let us know if you find one. That's information, and we get exposed to that. One of the things I follow on Twitter is something called Uber Facts. Random facts. One of the things that this array of information does to us is we are fed so much information so quickly. You know the thing about the dopamine hits, and so you get more information, and what's so-and-so, and who's getting in touch with him, and what it had, and, and okay, oh, it's his birthday, and so on. This information is flooding us so quickly that we don't have time to take the knowledge and information we have and synthesize it into wisdom. Wisdom is synthesized information. Yes, this is a fruit. Okay, I'll put it in a fruit salad. No, wait a minute. Have you tasted a tomato? Have you ever seen a tomato in a fruit salad? Now we're in the synthesis process that's moving us towards wisdom. Does that make sense? In this world of information overload, we don't have the opportunity. We don't even have the time. Stop and allow ourselves to process the information, the knowledge that's there. You guys can't hear me? There we go. Number two is information, inf information. Number three is information versus wisdom. Oh, this is great. This is great. A guy called John Mark Comer, he said this. I found it so helpful. He said that uh, someone was interviewing him. He's a author, and uh, he was talking about how he handles technology, and he said that he doesn't turn on his phone until 11 o'clock in the morning. I found that fascinating. He said, uh, I'm asking, well, why do you do that? He said, well, I find that technology is great for staying on top of things, but I'm trying to get to the bottom of things. I had a handheld mic, I could drop the mic and walk off the stage right there. Some of you are doing great at staying on top of things. How many of you would say, actually, I'm, I feel I'm doing really well as well in terms of uh, getting to the bottom of things? Number four is the big one. Number four is truth versus lies. 
This world of knowledge and information and wisdom and so on, Jesus makes this astounding claim. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus introduces us to a radical concept of truth Truth not as a set of facts, as a set of information, not even necessarily uh, wisdom as truth as wisdom, truth as, as facts that are correctly organized and synthesized. But he introduces us to this whole idea radically of truth as a person. His name is Jesus. In a world of information overload, Jesus says to you and I, are you weary? And heavy laden. Because today he'd have said, Is your inbox over for? Come to me, all of you, weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you. You think rest is about getting to Diani Beach as often as you can? Maybe that's a part of it. There's a, tree, there's a truer rest and a deeper rest. It comes from encountering Jesus. It goes on John 8 verse 32. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He introduces us to this concept of truth as something that sets us free. Sets us free from what? Well, it's a long list, but here's just one thing I'll give you. Sets us free from hopelessness. A guy called Bill Johnson, I probably don't agree with everything that he says, but there's some things he says that are absolutely spot on. He said this, any area of your life in which you are experiencing hopelessness, any area of my life for which I have no hope is under the influence of a lie. And so I want us to understand I'm moving beyond now information or knowledge are moving us now into a world of truth and lies. And lies have an effect in our lives and one of those effects is to produce hopelessness. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for my business. There's no hope for my career. There's no hope for this relationship. Areas come under the influence of a lie. Like the true video said, as long as there's Jesus, there's always hope. I want to introduce us to this juxtaposition of truth and lies. I want to suggest to you that every lie that you've heard, the lies that are multiplied by social media and the internet into our lives, fall into one of four categories. I can't see it on here, it's on the screen, so don't stress too much. Category number one is lies about God. Where do I get this from? Well, when the father of lies breaks into the story on planet Earth, what's the first thing he does? 
He lies, but lies about what exactly? He lies about... But I mean, it's so subtle. You have to, you have to check the fine print to see if he's lying. Lying. Because he arrives on the scene and he says, and this is the way that lies work, uh, if, if, did God really say that she must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this guy is a master of camouflage and subterfuge and sabotage. It's hard to pick out the lie there. Fundamentally, attacking the character of God. That's why, friends, it's so healthy, it's so powerful to gather on a Sunday morning every week and remind ourselves of who God is. When you and I sing that refrain over and over again, you are good, good, good to me. You are good, good, good to me. We're pushing back the lies of the enemy. He loves to say to you, first of all, God doesn't exist. And if he does, he's absolutely irrelevant. How does the internet and social media do that? Well, by whole Twitter feeds that, ha- that make no or hardly any reference to him at all. He's irrelevant. Ah, you're one of these Christians, you're convinced that he exists? Okay. I want to tell you that he's not real. I want to tell you that he can't be trusted. The lies that come to us. Jesus said, I am the truth. It's in the embodied truth of Jesus what the Father is like. Jesus said, Philip, you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at the way the Father treats the Son. That's the way he wants to treat you and I as we come and give our lives to Jesus. Moses, unlike anyone else, God isn't just good, he's better than you think. Even this morning we want to wage war on lies. We are believing about a good God. Second category of lies we tend to believe that are multiplied by technology is lies about you. Lies like this. You're not good enough. No one loves you. You'll always be alone. Your value is based on your popularity. I know I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the next person next to you, so you can relax. I know you've never been in that WhatsApp group, and you say something, and everyone's like, that's an average comment, it doesn't even uh, respond to it necessarily. Then someone else makes a very average comment, and then everyone's like, oh, wow, that's so great. You've never been a little bit upset about things happening like that, I know. Maybe the person next to you. 
you are your popularity, you are your sex appeal, or you are what the opposite sex thinks about you. You are what you earn. My friends, these are not just misinformation. This is not just alternative facts. These are lies. Lies come with a power that shapes us. They come with a motive that destroys us. I can click on my iTunes, go back to the 1980s. So you millennials, you have to cover your ears. We'll come back to you. But you'll hear songs like, Ain't nothing going on but the rent. No romance without finance. People from the 80s are starting to wake up. You've got to have a J-O-B if you want to be with me. Now, you've got to dissect that there. There's some bits in that I like, particularly because I have a 10-year-old daughter. And I would say to her, if boys come professing love, but have no J-O-B, before making any commitments, please come talk to your father. So I like that bit. But for the guys listening to that, there's a lie that comes which is actually only acceptable based on the amount of money that you have. Force are what you earn. You are your sex appeal. You are your popularity. Jesus said, I am the truth. And he came to demonstrate for us a life that no one could compete with. Was it based on what he earned? No. He earned close to nothing. Was it earned on his sex appeal? Despite the attraction of his character, we never even hear his sexuality referenced. All we know is that he's married to an eternal bride. Based on his popularity, you see him, look, sometimes the crowds love me, sometimes they don't. It doesn't define who I am. It doesn't define who you are. Lies about the problem. Social media tells us what the problem is. You ask the average Kenyan, what is the problem? That's easy, the problem is the government. And behind that is, especially the guys in the different tribe to me, Ask other people, they'll say the problem is poverty. So I must do everything I can to run away from poverty. If it means I must be corrupt to run away from poverty, then I shall be corrupt. Jesus comes to us and he says the problem isn't the government. The problem isn't the Romans. The problem isn't poverty. is what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
forfeit his soul. Jesus defines the problem with a blinding clarity. He's saying, what's the biggest problem in my life? Is it, is it, 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 it I, I don't have enough money or it's, or it's sickness or it's any manner of things. The Bible says what, what, what separates our biggest problem is sin. So key. Remember in my surgical training, sometimes you have a consult. A consult is when you run out of ideas, so you have to go to another doctor, another team, and say, hey, we, we need your advice on this. And so I went to speak to this guy, and he asked me a great, great question. I said, hey, I've got a consult. And this doctor said this. He said, no problem, before you say anything else, is it a diagnostic problem, or is it a therapeutic problem? I've never forgotten that, because he said, if you're going to unravel any problem, you first got to understand, do you actually know what the problem is? And you just haven't found the right solution yet? Or you're actually still trying to figure out what the problem is? Friends, on planet Earth today, we have a diagnostic problem. Jesus defines as sin. It's only when you know what the problem is that you can get to the solution. Bill Johnson said, the enemy lies to make the problems we have fear to make the problems we face appear larger than the solutions we carry. The last one in the band, you can come on up, is uh, believe lies about the solution. Because if, if, the, if the fundamental problem is government, then the answer is the next elections. Then everyone gets tense around election time. The problem is poverty. Then everyone has a side hustle. Everyone's open to a little bit on the side. Police officers are free to ask for kitukidogo. The problem is poverty. Problem is sin in my heart and in your heart. There's only one possible solution. Scripture speaks of him as the sin bearer. His name is Jesus. He came and died on a cross to reconcile us to our good, good Father. Haman taught us that we have an enemy who's taken us hostage, but he's come to rescue us. We have an enemy who feeds us lies every day. And this is multiplier number one. Come to set us free. Come to set us free from the lie that we need to rescue ourselves that we need to look inside ourselves, that's where the answer is. Not to look inside my soul, it's not even to necessarily feed and nurture my soul, like that prophetic word came. It's to let go my soul and trust in him. The answer isn't in here, the answer isn't out there, the answer is a person called Jesus. who came and died on a cross to deal with our sin and his life 
and his words are the antidote to the lies that we're being fed every day. Jesus came to rescue us, friends. The truth about the solution is that the solution is Jesus plus nothing to tell us the truth about God, the truth about who we are, the truth about why we need Him plus nothing.